And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Soccer Show. This is the Weekend Review. My name is Ryan Bailey and joining me today to cast an eye on some of the biggest games of the last few days is a man who managed to watch a bunch of games over the weekend and the Zack Snyder Justice League cut. He's finding extra hours in the day that the rest of us don't have. It's Taylor Rockwell. <laughs> uh, as expected, I did not finish the Snyder Cut <laughs> of Justice League. I still got a ways to go on that one, but I did watch a whole bunch of soccer. All of it Sunday. Thanks, everybody who scheduled this weekend. Yeah, wonderfully scheduling, not, not, not putting any of the big games on Saturday. That's, that's the second time, I think, in two weeks that has Oof. happened. Thanks, soccer. Yeah. But I'm, I'm, uh, how, how far did you get into Zack Snyder's cut? Was it uh, like six or seven hours? You got a few <laughs> more to go? Uh, how, how long is it actually? Is it four hours? I believe it's four hours. So I got to part four. I don't know how many parts there are, but it's one of, one of the, but not the final big battles, I think. I don't really need the big battles. I enjoyed the one that didn't exist that Zack Snyder had like made for this movie even if it was part partially why i watched it was to see how bad the cgi was in the places that he had to make up and the answer was they made it video game style which made it somehow more appealing uh but all that to say i'm still probably about i'm probably like two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through i don't know why i'm so interested in this thing i'm never going to watch i just i'm (laughs) I'm just fascinated by the fact that a four-hour cut of a movie which was kind of panned is of, of such great cultural interest well if you make it not slow motion it's actually about an hour and a half long that's the that's the thing. He loves some slow motion. If you thought he loved it in his other movies, buckle up. Oh boy, is, uh, is that his version of lens flare going doing yes. the uh, yes. doing the slow mo? Yes, I, I it is. It's a better movie than Justice League, which isn't a high bar, but it's definitely a movie made by one person instead of two different movies crammed together into one movie. There you go. There's Taylor's IMDb review there. You can find mm-hmm. it on the website. Uh, a good five out of ten. I'm, I'm interpreting that as. Joining Taylor and I is a man who would never turn down a hug from Scott Brown. It's Graham Ruffin. Hello. I certainly <laughs> wouldn't turn down a, a hug from Scott Brown. It was the first sign of any affection right. over the weekend he's ever shown in, in his life. But I, I guess given the circumstances, which we'll probably talk about later, it was, it was, it was apt and quite, and quite heartwarming. But yes. Hi, Ryan. How are you? I'm very good, thank you, Graham. For a bit of context there, this is the old firm Derby we were talking about and Celtic midfielder Scott Brown. Can you give us a little bit of insight into his character? Um, Roy Keane-esque? Is that, is that a good way of describing it? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, Roy Keane is, is, is his muse. Although now uh, I've seen Roy <laughs> Keane is, is, is on Instagram now and uh, showing a, a human side. So I, I think uh, Scott Brown goes even further than, uh, than Roy Keane uh, in, in his whole shtick, I think. Roy Keane's uh, Instagram is a, is a sight to behold. I do enjoy it very much. Uh, but you saying uh, Roy Keane is his muse, that's just got me picturing Roy Keane laying down, like, paint me like your French girls. Well, he's, you know, <laughs> oh, is no. that kind of muse? <laughs> oh, no, I hope he leaves that off his Instagram. <laughs> Who, who's, is it Paul Scholes doing the painting then? <laughs> oh, dear. Paul Scholes is definitely just painting a stick figure. <laughs> My favorite Paul Skull story is that when he had his car stolen off his driveway, uh, he was warming up in the morning um, and someone stole his car. It, like Paul Skulls is one of the least, you know, if you're going to steal yeah. anyone's car, don't steal Paul Skulls' car. You're going to get two-footed as you yeah. drive away. He's going to two-foot the car and it'll flip three times. <laughs> See, what I thought you were going to go with was like, like Paul Skulls seems like another one of those sort of like, Grim it like grin and bear it like I'm just very serious. I'm about my business. The idea that his car was warming up for him to get into stands at odds with that. Roy Keane the same. Like I'm assuming he uses that feature as well. But it seems like he should just be getting into his car like with ice cubes on his feet or yeah. something. He, I feel like actually, Roy Keane should be harder than that. He turns the aircon on on a cold yeah. morning. Exactly, exactly. He makes it colder. Yeah. <laughs> he needs the attrition. Yeah. <laughs> That's the problem with modern soccer players is they don't do things like that. They've gone soft. 
Well, to, to Ryan's opening question, I just picture Scott Brown like going home and just sitting in a in a chair in a quiet room with like nothing around him and just getting angrier and angrier. And mm. that's his version of sleeping. He just wakes up angrier than he was when he went to sleep, and then he's ready to go for the day. That's the level of <laughs> intensity that I think he brings to the equation. Yeah, wonderful stuff. All right, we've got plenty of games we're going to be talking about from this weekend. And by the way, if you're looking out for a little bit of a review on the USMNT's under-23 outing mm-hmm. against the Dominican Republic yeah. uh, in Olympic qualifying, you're going to be uh, tr- delighted to know that Taylor and uh, the, the, uh, the what do we call him, of Porto? The, the, the dictator, uh, the dictator of, Porto. of Porto. Yeah, <laughs> Joe Lowry will be covering uh, that one in a separate episode uh, later on. Have we got any treats lined up for that one, Taylor? I mean, we've already got a treat. We talked about... Uh, Gerard Butler's Scottish accent fighting to escape his face every time he talks. <laughs> uh, Ryan, your your disdain <laughs> for the CONCACAF Olympic qualifiers, you fought really well with it. You did a really good job to be sound excited about uh, me and Joe talking about the young U.S. national team. Thanks. <laughs> uh, I will say it was a really interesting game because it definitely lives up to the cliche that I will not say, but pertains to soccer having two halves, that the first half was really, really bad, and the second half was really, really not bad, and we're going to look at how they changed things and why it was so bad on the first and why it was so much better in the second. A game of four quarters, that's what you're that's looking for, I think, on that mm-hmm. one. Okay, we can look forward to that episode later on uh, on this feed. Uh, today, though, we're going to be talking about West Ham taking on Arsenal in what I would dub the game of the weekend. I didn't watch all the games. It was the best game I watched, though. Uh, it was the FA Cup this weekend as well. Leicester took on Manchester United. We'll see uh, who ended up in the semi-final. Uh, you probably know by now, but we'll find that out later. Uh, we're also going to go to France. Uh, Leon versus PSG, a game in which the winner would go to the top of League R. So much peril, so much peril, so many terrible kits to discuss in that one. <laughs> and of course, uh, we'll be going to look at the Old Firm derby as well to discuss Scott Brown's hugging technique. We'll start off though, gents, with West Ham against Arsenal. Just the six goals here, five of which were scored by West Ham, but they didn't win. Uh, it was a 3-3 draw in the end. A very, very fun game this was. It felt quite high stakes. This one happened, Graham, on the same day as the Old Firm derby. And this one felt like it had much higher stakes, like there was a lot more uh, going for it, which is fair because there probably was. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, West Ham going for for Champions League and Arsenal going for top nine. (laughs) 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 Not sure what Arsenal are going for anymore. But yes, from a West Ham perspective, it's, it, there's certainly a lot uh, riding on 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 this game, and it, yeah, it was it was the best game of the weekend. I, I I watched quite a number of games of the weekend, and this was the one that that had me gripped the most, and and really I think showed the the good side of West Ham, and also how they learned from some of the mistakes in 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 the game, the defeat to Manchester United. They were much more proactive. They went with that that front four of. Uh, Antonio Lingard, Bowen, and Ben Rama, which was uh, much more creative, much as I say, proactive than than, than that United game. And then also the bad side of West Ham, where they go three 0 up, and all of a sudden David Moyes uh, remembers that he's uh, David Moyes, and um, <laughs> they get a bit more conservative, um, allow Arsenal back into the game, and as soon as it went three one, which wasn't long after it went three 0 you kind of got the sense that Arsenal were going to fight back and get something. Yeah, so Arsenal, by the way, they are going Tottenham in the Premier League, but they're still trying to maintain their top position in the Meme League, uh, which they very much uh, they got some good points in that one uh, for, for, from this game. But if, if I'm a West Ham fan, I'm thinking if, we, if, if the West Ham do miss out on the Champions League this season by a narrow margin, this day, Taylor, has surely got to be the day where they think we, we blew that, didn't we? Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair, even though it, sound, it sounds harsh, but it is the case, because this is a West Ham team currently fifth, two points behind Chelsea. That it, like, I'm not saying this is the right way to see this team, but for me, I think there is, until a, a club show that they can keep doing it, like Leicester City, when they win the title, even until like March, I was sort of like, let's wait and see. Let's see if Leicester can actually do it. And I think that's sort of my approach with West Ham. So to watch them in this game, I kept expecting... Arsenal to fight back and cause problems and eventually probably Arsenal win four to three and instead it was pretty open West Ham uh, have Mikel Antonio hit the post there that could have Mm. been the difference maker and it did feel like a really open-ended game that either team could have won which maybe isn't what I was expecting knowing the scoreline and watching this after it had finished and so to know that they go up three nil that to know that they could have gone up by that extra goal 
to know that a lot of their mistakes, I would say, were self-inflicted or just little positional mistakes that ended up costing them. Yes, I think this ends up being a game that they could look back on because otherwise they're still in fifth but level on points and knocking Arsenal off, that's got to feel like a pretty much a, a confidence-inducing sort of result as opposed to this one, which feels a bit more like, ah, oh, it was okay, but we could have done more, and that's never what you want at the end of a game. Yeah, so my, my theory here is that um, West Ham got worse arguably, or they were, they were getting worse before this happened, but when Mark Noble came on. And that didn't feel like the right kind of move that David Moyes should be making. And I, I think I noted in our, in our show notes that in the Man United game, they got better when Mark Noble came off. And I mean no disrespect to Mark Noble, but him being the kind of player he is, Graham, mm-hmm. uh, perhaps does that speak to David Moyes' tactical failings somewhat? Um, not so much his tactical failings, because I think the the the... the the instinct was to, for me, I, I thought Noble came on to sit on Odegaard, who was very much starting yeah. to pull the strings in, in the middle of the pitch and mm. in between the kind of Thomas Partey and Zaka and, and, and the attack. And so I think Noble was was brought on for that reason. But I think it certainly speaks to Moyes' conservative, uh, to use the term again, in, instinct in that it was a reactive change where it, at West Ham, really, everything that they'd shown in the game was... Uh, everything they'd done well in the game I should say was when they were playing their own game and, and yeah. trying to attack Arsenal and, and, and as Taylor says there they could have scored a, a fourth goal when, when Michael Antonio um, hits the post and that came from them playing their own game and, and, and creating an opportunity but it, it, it's, it feels like this season is a, almost a once in a decade opportunity for West Ham. Yeah. And I don't get the sense that... So last season, um, Leicester, as, as you mentioned there, they, they miss out on the top four, but you, you got the feeling that they were going to come again. And I, I don't think... I'll be surprised if West Ham are in this position next season because it still feels like a little bit of a fluke that they're in this position. Something's just happened and, and they've got the right balance and, and maintaining that to next season will be difficult. So as you, as you referenced, this will be likely be one of the games they look back on as uh, when it kind of fell apart from them in, in making the Champions League. But yeah. I think I think to go with what Graham's point about Noble coming on and why he came on, I think that's part of what the problem was for West Ham because when they have uh, Rice and Suchek sort of sitting in, uh, like keeping keeping things really tight through the middle, I don't think that they gave uh, Arsenal a lot of time to create near the top of the box or through the center of the pitch. Uh, and but what I think happened is that they kept having sort of two banks of four because Ben Rama and Bowen would drop in. You have those kind of two defensive lines. Lacazette did a really, really good job of finding space. That's where the first goal comes from is he sort of stays in that gap and manages to stay in that gap until the ball comes to him. And then it's uh, a deflected shot that I, I don't know. I guess it's an own goal, so it wasn't going on frame. But still, he does really well to find that space. And I think in the second half, the instruction from Moyes was to drop a little bit deeper to make sure that you didn't have those gaps. But if you're dropping off five yards, let's say, if you're that midfield pair, that's five more yards for Martin Odegaard to operate. Mm. And I think that all, again, emphasizes Graham's point, which is that once you're sort of reacting to what your opponent is doing and trying to change what you're doing to limit the effectiveness of their approach, you are sort of handing the momentum to them. Though West Ham continue to attack and continue to get chances, I do think those little adjustments did cost them on the day. And we'll move on to talk about Arsenal in a second, but a little bit more on West Ham. Uh, Declan Rice, who I keep wanting to call Damien Rice for various reasons, um, <laughs> he he that he nearly won it at the end as well with what would have been an outrageous solo yeah. goal. Like it was like Hyung Min Son against Burnley uh, not so long ago. That would have been very special. Uh, but Taylor, I wanted to ask you about Jesse Lingard, who yep. is once again you know come back comes back into the team for this one and proves that he is arguably first on the team sheet in, on this West Ham team at the moment. Um, do you still find joy as a Man United fan in watching him thrive in London? Because I think I would. Yeah, absolutely. Because he's never been, like, he was a frustrating player to watch at times, but he's always seemed to be a good locker room guy, a good teammate, a fun a fun dude on, on the social medias. Uh, <laughs> so to see him, yeah, finding form in a position that I think is basically exactly what he wants to be doing. I feel like David Moyes looked around and was like, oh, I need a 10 who does this, this, and this, and then realized that was Jesse Lingard. And so it's fitting really, really well. I had a friend of mine ask me, like, are, are you sad to see him doing really, really well, knowing that he could go back to Manchester United and maybe help them a bit more? But I don't think he would. I think he'd be sitting behind Bruno and not doing the, the same things and not facilitating the attack as well. So I think it's really good to see him 
having a, I've said good like five times, but you know what I'm trying to say is that yeah. he's been a very key and instrumental player to this West Ham attack. And I do sort of hope they sign him on a permanent because anytime a player finds that form and has the success and just seems to be enjoying football again, it's always nice to see. He inspires joy for the neutral as well. I'll say that much. I do enjoy watching him play right. as well. Like um, in terms of Arsenal, uh, we, Martin Odegaard, we should probably talk about him. He had a, he had a wonderful game yeah. here, as did uh, Lacazette, as you mentioned, Taylor, who specialised in finding that space and sort of dropping deep and finding the space and creating that space in behind as well. He, he really was very impressive here. Uh, the same not, nece- not necessarily can be said for uh, Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang returning into this game and uh, not offering an awful lot in terms of attitude or uh, attainment in this game, I would argue. Uh, but, but, but with Martin Odegaard, um, it seems like, to me, Graham, he's like a big move up on what Mesut Ozil should have been. Um, it, it seems like, you know, lovely passing, you know, very direct with what he does. One touch to control, uh, recycles it, slings it on, does exactly what he's supposed to, to, to supposed to do. If I'm an Arsenal fan, I'm thinking, surely we've got to get this guy permanently, right, Graham? Yeah, that was one of my takeaways from 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 the weekend's game was, I I, I don't know, the, 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 the reports out of Spain are that Real Madrid as a, as a club, um, so basically from Florentino Perez, wants to keep Odegaard because they see him as the the natural uh, successor to Luka Modric. Yeah. Zinedine Zidane is not so keen on Odegaard and and that's that's a little bit strange because Zidane was the one who recalled him after just a season at at Real Sociedad he was obviously on loan there and it was initially supposed to be a two season loan uh, loan deal. He recalls him, plays him in the first game of the season incidentally against Sociedad, plays him in a midfield diamond that didn't really suit him and then wasn't really given another opportunity to 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 prove himself. So if it's up to Zidane, I think Arsenal would have a good chance of, of signing him permanently. But Florentino Perez, I think we've discussed in the podcast before, is is a little bit restless with Zidane. It feels like he wants to make a a big name managerial appointment soon. So that that could be the wild card that dis- disrupts things for Arsenal. But they've yeah. they've found out how to get the the best from him, which is basically just feed him the ball as as often as as you can because he, he completed seven passes into the box against West Ham, which was the most by an Arsenal player in a in any single game this season, which I think illustrates just how influential he has become. And um, I, I do feel, look, I'm not the only person to have rated Martin Odegaard by any measure, but I, I remember as Arsenal fans maybe when he was signed, not really sure what he'd offer. I, I saw some Arsenal fans, uh, one Arsenal fan in particular, claiming they didn't need another trickster, which mm-hmm. I, I thought... Um, just there was a, a bit of a, a misunderstanding of what he would bring, and and yeah, I feel a little bit of vindication to see him doing so well because I, I felt like it was a good fit right from the the moment he arrived. Yeah, definitely so. And Modric is what thirty five? Is he found thirty five or so? So it, yeah, it feels that, like yeah. that mantle will be passed fairly soon if he's going to do be, be the replacement at Madrid, right? You would think so, but actually, I'm I'm writing an article this week about how Modric is is basically in the form of his life, and I think he's yeah. having his best season, even better than the one he won the Ballon d'Or for. Um, so, he, yeah, you would think so at 35, but um, Modric just seems to be getting even more influential at Real Madrid. So that might be frustrating for Odegaard, and he might he might think, look, I'm first team for a a, a big Premier League club. He might fancy just uh, making that his his no, his Graham, he's, club. he's first team at Arsenal. Not a big. There's a difference there. Sorry. Zing. I don't think I don't think either of these analogies works perfectly, but it reminds me a little bit of like the Tom Brady Drew Bledsoe thing with the Patriots. A little bit Conan O'Brien Jay Leno as well. It's where loans never make that much sense to me when it's like you bring in this young player to one day replace the very good player, but then if they're both kind of continuing to function. Maybe Jay Leno is a bit harsh to call Luka Modric, but like it, it, it becomes that problem of then you're sending another. It's like it's as though NBC like loaned Conan out for a couple of years to ABC. It's like isn't that creating competition where he's going to be like, oh, this place values me and gives me money and lets me play. I want to stay here now. Like I never quite understand how that's supposed to work aside from the player feeling the motivation to just play for Madrid, I guess. But if I'm Martin Odegaard. It seems like Mikel Arteta really, really likes what he brings to the team. It seems like it gives him a lot of freedom to go at people and try different things. I think that's the difference with Mesut Ozil. I feel like Odegaard is more willing to kind of try to take control of the game and assert some authority. Mm. And I thought in this game, that's what it required. And that's why I think Arsenal pull it back. I was already um, hanging on for dear life with a lot of the Zack Schneider analogies. And now we've moved on <laughs> to American TV, late t- uh, night TV hosts. I'm, I'm gone. I mean, I know who these people are, but... <laughs> 
Uh, you Graham, could have been just, saying anything there, Taylor. <laughs> yeah, just, just remember your team, Coco, Graham, and you'll be fine. Uh, that's yeah, all okay. you need to. That is, okay. that is all you need to remember. And that is all you need to concern yourself factual. with. Although uh, the the Simpsons episode with Jay Leno and a monkey bathing a clown is uh, is uh, one of my favorites still. Uh, we'll, uh, <laughs> we'll move off from that comment. Uh, you mentioned Mikel Arteta there, Tete. I'm interested in what he did differently from the, in this game, say, from the Spurs win. We had Aubameyang coming back in, but like, say the back line, we had Chambers in over, I think it was Cedric who was in that position, uh, if I remember correctly, for the Spurs yeah. game. We had a different centre-back pairing with Mari coming in for this one. It seemed like the defence le- left a lot to be desired from Arsenal in this game. Was that, was that down to Arteta or was it, you know, what else was it? I mean, I think there's a couple things. I think it is, uh, like, you still have David Luiz in there, and you're always going to have David Luiz moments, like when he completely decides not to mark for one of the goals. Yeah. Uh, I think it was the third one. He's just sort of standing there flat-footed. But I think a, a big part of it as well was just that West Ham, I think, went at Arsenal in a way they weren't expecting and were very proactive in their attacks and trying to play quick, trying to find opportunities. The quick uh, restart, I think it was Jesse Lingard with the quick restart, I could be wrong on that one, that leads to the second goal. It just seemed like West Ham maybe sprung an attack on Arsenal a little bit, and they just were not ready to handle that. I think once they got their relationships down and Thomas Partey and Granit Xhaka, I think, maybe settled into the game a little bit, I think they weren't quite as influential as maybe they needed to be in those first 30 minutes or so, or 40 minutes, I should say. I think that... That makes a big difference. And then I think uh, Martin Odegaard, again, having having more time and space and Lacazette just being very, very good. I have lots to say about Lacazette, but I'll hold off since that's not the question. So that, that bow and goal, that quick free kick you mentioned there, mm-hmm. Taylor, I'd like to quickly chat about that as well. Uh, not least because Leno was beaten at his near post, which, you know, they say you should never do. But also something which I think you're taught uh, or you should be taught is when a free kick's about to be taken, you put a defender to stand on the ball. Yep. So that, you know, the referee has to tell you to move away so you can get your team set up. And then we had Arsenal very much being caught unaware by this quick free kick. And there's been some controversy because when we watched on TV, even the cameras missed it. It was that it was taken that quickly. But John Moss uh, appeared to be taking out his spray to spray where the free kick should be taken or where the, the wall should be built or whatever. And he just let it go from a slightly different position anyway. So there was, there was some con- controversy in that for sure. But I, I still blame Arsenal for just not, not being switched on enough for that one, Taylor. Yeah, I mean, I think to your point, you've got to have the presence of mind. And this is a thing that I would usually think of Granit Xhaka as doing really well, is the ability to complain about the decision while also standing in front of the ball. Because then... like. The best uh, uh, housery involves knowing what you're doing, but making it seem like it is accidental. So when you're trying to slow the play down by picking the ball up, and then you're talking to the ref, and then you're like, oh, sorry, am I holding the ball? I didn't realize I was delaying everything. <laughs> You've got to have that combination, uh, because otherwise, yes, you give them free reign to pass forward and score goals. Indeed. Uh, gents, any more on this game before we move on? It was it was a very decent six-goal thriller with uh, two flawed but entertaining teams, I would suggest. Graham, anything else? Um, I feel like we should recognise Callum Chambers' performance because yeah. felt like when he was when I saw him in the starting lineup trying to rationalise that it felt like he was in there from a for a defensive reason to help Arsenal deal with West Ham um, from set pieces. But as as Jamie Carragher, who was on Co-Coms here in the UK, said during the match, he somehow turned into Cafu and uh, was marauding up and down the right side. And not only that, was putting in some incredible crosses. I mean, Callum Champ, has he always had that delivery on him? Because some of the deliveries were so good that even the players in the middle, Lacazette and, and Aubameyang, weren't weren't reading them, and they, they should have been. But yeah, I thought he was. I thought he was brilliant and. Um, it's good to see him do well because obviously his his injury past has has been pretty checkered and and so I would like to see him. Uh, he's always had potential and so I'd I'd like to see him fulfil that. Does it pain you to say that, Graham, with uh, your boy Tierney on the other flank and th- all that success coming through the right flank from this game from Chambers? <laughs> we'll just switch back, to Andy Robertson. We can alternate <laughs> between the two. It's fine. Uh, for for me, I just wanted to briefly mention, number one, yes, I agree with Graham. Uh, Callum Chambers basically having the entire right-hand side free because West Ham decided to put everybody in the middle was Correct. an interesting choice, but that did work out. Uh, the, my favorite moment, though, that I, I found myself watching a, a whole bunch to try to figure out what happened was the third goal of the equalizer for Lacazette because 
I assumed it was like, oh, it's a really clever run. It's a fine run. I assumed it was like, oh, he's running at full speed to get the power he does on that header. Not really. He's sort of drifting. I think a lot of it is the pace that Pepe crosses with. But I kept trying to figure out why is he so wide open. And I just, it's a little tiny thing, but it made me really, really happy. And it is what you want your your number nine, your person who's going to meet that ball to do. He's being tracked by Dawson. And as the ball is, is getting ready to be crossed, Dawson goes to do what a defender normally does, which is you're touching the player you're marking. So you can kind of touch them without having to watch them. And Lacazette swipes the hand away and gives him a shove to the shoulder that kind of puts him off balance, puts Dawson off balance. And there's this half second to a second when Dawson is watching the ball about to be crossed, then gets kind of shoved away, turns to look at Lacazette, then looks back at the ball as it's being crossed. And it's completely flat footed because he's lost track of what's happening. And so you can just see this moment of like overload and he completely switches <laughs> off and then realizes, oh, I'm supposed to be marking Lacazette. And by then he's completely lost him. But just the, not just knocking the hand away, but giving a little bit of a, like a, a love tap as well, just to sort of distract but then allow uh, Lacazette to get open, I thought was a really good moment. A really little tiny detail, but it made me happy uh, as Arsenal got the draw. Yeah, and Dawson with a real, stri- a real striker's finish for that um, <laughs> second goal as well, by the way. Very not a great impressive. day. Not a great day. But not my favorite finish of the day. That was Lacazette for the first Arsenal goal with uh, controlling the ball with his groin, shooting towards the corner <laughs> flag and having it deflect into the goal anyway. I, I did enjoy that one as well. Oh, Thomas Suchek had an interesting game with the, like, yeah. the ball off his foot that I don't think he it was happening for the goal and then yep. the own goal as well <laughs> fun times at the hammer bowl uh let's move on <laughs> to uh, the fa cup we're going to do so uh very shortly after these quick messages looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone luckily with 24 7 us-based live customer service from discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service any time. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We are back. We are talking FA Cup, which is apparently a competition for egotists, according to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, but he doesn't have to worry <laughs> himself about that anymore because Leicester beat Manchester United 3-1 in this contest. I'm hearing Taylor's groans already. Uh, <laughs> Leicester moving into the FA Cup semi-final for the first time in 39 years. Well done to them. And we had the draw taking place uh, at halftime of this game. Uh, Manchester City uh, are going to face Chelsea in the semi-finals. Leicester going to be taking Southampton. Some might say that's a badly designed draw some might say it's not who's to say <laughs> let's move on with that one and talk about uh Leicester Taylor who deserve yeah. heaps of praise for this uh this uh performance here we said yeah. it before about Leicester in re- in relatively recent weeks that they, they're doing they're doing a fine job here with all the injuries they had they had no Madison no Barnes in this one no no Justin in this one either but they just keep stepping up and this three four one two that Brendan Rodgers has got them in they're so disciplined and it's, it's really fun to watch. And as much as we can talk about Man United, and we will, we need to focus on how good Leicester were here. We do. It still throws me that they have James Justin. So whenever you say Justin, I assume that's the first name and I get confused for a moment. <laughs> yeah, they were, they were excellent in this game. Uh, and it's the big pieces, it's the little pieces. Michael Cox for The Athletic wrote a great uh, piece for the, about this game, about uh, Leicester's prioritizing of throw-ins and how they use them to their advantage, but also use opposition throw-ins potentially to their advantage. And if you look at this game, you can see those moments where they caused Manchester United a lot of distress. And I think they caused them distress across the board because I think their formation was really, really solid with the back three. It really limited what Manchester United were trying to do in terms of how they were trying to attack when they came through the middle. But then you still had Jamie Vardy and Iannaccio sort of like combining really, really well, but also, I think, individually being capable of going at the defense 
on their own. And yeah. that sort of threat, that constant threat of they have the pace, they can get in behind, they're really good at finding those little spot, pockets of space to then capitalize. I think it kept Manchester United's head on a swivel and maybe made them a bit more conservative at times. And I think when it didn't, they ended up getting punished, which then made them more conservative. And I think overall, it was just an excellent game plan from Brendan Rodgers to get the win. Yeah, and, and Kelechi Iheanacho took, took a lot of the headlines and deservedly so with two goals and an assist in this one. Uh, and for, of course, a former Manchester City youth player as well. So getting one over Man United must be uh, fun for him. And he actually said it was fun for him to do so. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, this was a team performance uh, which sounds cliche, but it's true. And Graham, the the players I think that stood out for me were Ndidi and Tielemans in the middle of the field. Uh, Ndidi, we know that he, he's a very high-quality player, um, could probably walk into a lot of top teams uh, and maybe will do uh, soon. But uh, uh, Tielemans here had a, had a fun time as well and, you know, had, had sort of was marauding, I suppose is the word I'd use at times. Yeah, and I think if you put those two players... In the Manchester United team, I think Manchester United probably win this game, and that's my mm. way of saying I think they were the they were the biggest yep. difference between the two teams. Um, the the way Leicester City identified um, that Fred doesn't cope so well with a high press. Um, <laughs> I think it's fair to say, and and Fred does have his use, and I, I've, he's good as a, as 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 a press in his in his own right. I think I've called it the chaos press that he that he <laughs> brings in the past. Um, but on the ball, he can be volatile, both in his kind of control and he takes too many touches and often his decision making is a little bit, um, you know, not on point, shall we say. And before the, the goal, obviously, he passes it to, to an actual under pressure from, I think it's Tielemans and Iose Perez, maybe. Yeah. Um, but five minutes before that, there was a, a similar scenario where he basically gives up the ball and, and, and Jamie Vardy, I think it was, that had a good chance. So he had a warning sign and, and Leicester did this time and time again. And even for yeah. the the um, the Tielemans goal where he just surges right through the centre of, of, of the Manchester United uh, midfield and then to the edge of the box, it felt like Matic was just too slow and, and too immobile and Fred didn't cover himself in glory again for that goal. So, yeah, the, the, the match was very much encapsulated in that midfield battle between Fred and Matic from the Mayonet side who did not have a good game at all yeah. and uh, Telemans and Ndidi who, as I say, you put them in the Mayonet team, I think they win this game. There's there's a lot of ways certainly to compare and contrast those two, two uh, sets of players co- covering the defences there. You're quite right there, Graham. And, and Taylor, it seems like there are two Freds as as Graham has inferred there, that he does like to play the press game, and he's good when he can you know break up play and and get stuck in. Uh, um, but there's there are times when he's like this, and he mm-hmm. just is sloppy. And by, as Graham said, by the time that first uh, Inacho goal comes in and he makes the bad back pass, he'd already made dro- uh, given away the ball a couple of times before that point. And uh, as Graham mentioned as well, for the Tielemans goal. He just let Tielemans run past him. Wasn't in the mood to put in a tackle. So it, it's it was it seems like is it because the pairing of Fred and Matic doesn't work very well? He'd be better off if he had McTominay beside him. Is it is it I mean, is it the combination or is it just that Fred sometimes has a bad day? I mean that's part of it for sure. I, I think Graham kind of hit the nail on the head that I think under pressure he doesn't do as well. I don't think he has mm. a very good first touch. I don't think he's as good about absorbing pressure and finding open passing options, I think he's a bit more, I don't want to make a mistake, I got to get the ball back to whomever passed it to me. And I understand why they're trying to build this way, because you're trying to have those quick little passes, you pull Lester out a little bit, you make them commit numbers forward, then you try to find those open options. But I think Fred, with his back to, back to kind of the field, rushes and doesn't feel quite as confident on the ball in those moments. And again, I think that's Lester being aware of what his vulnerabilities are, and then hoping Man United play the ball into him in his vulnerable position, and then they go after him and you see what happens there. And you're right, Ryan, that it was a thing that happened a couple different times. So I think it's a thing that if clubs start game planning for to let Fred have the ball and then put him under pressure, I think it will be a much bigger problem than it is right now. McTominay helps, certainly, in that he's more mobile than Matic, because you're right, that Tielemans goal is Matic, I think, on a 1-2, just completely not tracking Tielemans, but then it is Fred biting on the little stutter step to never really put in a play, and that's what lets lets Tielemans get open to shoot. And so, like, Taylor Twelman, doing the commentary for this one, got a lot of stick for saying that Manchester United need uh, another uh, holding midfielder. They need a central defensive midfielder. 
because the kind of complaint in response was they have three and none of them are doing that well. And mm. I think I see what he's saying, though, that like none of these are the seem to be the holding midfielder that they want, who is yeah. good on the ball, can keep it moving, can find open options, but then defend if necessary. I think they all possess that in bits and pieces. I think Nemanja Matic probably six years ago did that really, really well. I don't know if that's the player he is anymore. Yeah. And so fundamentally, it is strange to watch this game and think of it as like Matic, if you compare him to, say, Morgan Schneiderlin, like this is a Man United team that 10 years ago or five years ago, even, I feel like they have switched at this point. And it's Ndidi starting for Manchester United and it's Matic starting for Leicester. And I think that's Leicester being really smart in their recruitment and being able to hold on to players more. But I think it's Manchester United still having big gaps that they need to fill this offseason if they want to uh, be able to handle things like a vague amount of pressure on one of your midfielders. <laughs> the, the the way the way I'd sum up my thoughts on the, on mine is defensive midfield position is that at the moment they're they're using two players that I think should be one player's role. Yeah, yeah. And so indeed, they you know they need Fred Matic and even McTominay. I'd contest McTominay is better when he can drive forward with the ball at mm-hmm. his feet rather than an orthodox defensive midfielder. But they all three of them have their own qualities. But the best teams have a defensive holding midfielder who can basically do the the role of of two players, and that's what Leicester have in Indiri. That's the sort of player my United need for 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 my money. The uh, the best comment I saw about this, and particularly the first goal. Uh, uh, for, for Leicester was that the first goal was an 80 million pound vision from Maguire and a 50 million pound pass from Fred, uh, which doesn't speak too too uh, well to the situation Ouch. there. But Harry Maguire, Taylor, can can just for, to update my records, is he great mm-hmm. or is he terrible? Because last week uh, I think he was like. <laughs> peak Maldini against West Ham and this week he left a lot to be desired I think he, he got nut, uh, nutmegged on more than one occasion not great on that um, second goal and obviously the for the first goal really put Fred in it by passing to him with three blue shirts right next to him yeah see that that like I don't if that's part of the game plan though I don't have an issue with that because that's like a probing pass the ball goes back to him he sp- spreads it wide to Juan Bissaka but because those three players have collapsed on Fred now maybe Juan Bissaka can play in Greenwood and now there's just a little more space so I like that type of thing I'm kind of comfortable in assuming that that's a thing they've worked on or that's a thing that they've been asked to do if not it's definitely a problem but I think Harry Maguire remains inconsistent for sure but also to some extent in my mind a victim of the squad around him not making him look that much better the the constant refrain i saw yesterday was that like right now does harry Maguire start in that back three for leicester which has soyunju evans and fofana and i i don't really know like probably is my guess but i know that he doesn't have indeed and tielemans ahead of him he has fred and matic in this game and that makes a big difference he doesn't have jamie vardy stretching the defense and making the like that back line always nervous he has Anthony Martial, who himself is very streaky and intermittent. Donny van de Beek, I think, didn't do all that much in this game. I was really excited to see him. More excited to see him sub out uh, when all of the changes happen at once, which yeah. was also confusing. But I think it's it's Harry Maguire sometimes, I think, is a victim of others around him not necessarily helping him. And then he himself making some high-profile mistakes that like you add those together and it looks like a bigger issue than it might be. As, uh, as Taylor mentions there, Graham, uh, four changes coming just after the hour mark with Bruno, McTominay, Luke Shaw and Cavani coming on. Uh-huh. Do we criticise Ole Gunnar Solskjaer for his team selection from the outset there? Because he, uh, you know, Van der Beek, as uh, Taylor says, not covering himself in glory. It seems like they, well, he almost, almost started a B string in a quite an important cup competition before sort of trying to correct things late on. Yeah, this this is a difficult one for me. There's been a lot of focus on this after the match. I think in hindsight, obviously, it, it, it didn't work. He would have been better going with his his, uh, his strongest squad. But I do understand why he made the changes. And the quality of his squad should mean that he gets away with making changes. I mean, the players that he put in were, are, were not bad players. You know, Donny van der Beek was seen as a brilliant signing as recently as last summer. Alex Tillis is, is you know, a, a, a full international, again, was seen as someone who would strengthen the first team when he came in last summer. So it's, it's not, I feel like he should have been able to make those changes. His squad should be strong enough for those changes not to have that much of a dropout. And there's been a lot of focus on Bruno Fernandes in particular dropping out of the team because the problem with Van der Beek is when you put him in, the place of Fernandez, they're totally different players. And so it changes, it's not just about changing one position, it changes the approach of the whole team. 
and that's a real issue for Manchester City with Van der Beek. It feels like he's he's a bit of a misfit for this Man United team. Not that he's a bad player, he's just in in, in the wrong side. But Solskjaer mentioned after the game that Fernandez had uh, made record numbers of uh, sprints and had covered the most distance he'd ever covered in the in the game against East Milan during during the week. And I know that Liverpool do a lot of pe- what's called period periodization. Um, which is kind of a sort of sports science analysis of working out when players are going to break down and burn out. And I think given a lot of the hires that Manchester United have made, they're trying to emulate that. And so Solskjaer's comments suggested that he had sort of had advice that basically if he played Bruno Fernandes or a couple others in this game, they would risk burnout. And so that's why I have a little bit of understanding as to why he'd made those changes. But in hindsight, now Leicester have a FA Cup semi-final against Southampton that Manchester United uh, would have uh, sucked your hands off for. <laughs> Silver linings, Graham. That's what I like to hear. Um, Taylor, it's almost as if... Um, I'm still laughing at, at that was, outstanding reference from Graham. It was Thank pretty you, outstanding. I, I hope we make that reference every week because that deserves to be a regular feature on this show. Um Donny van der Beek not having the best of times, yeah. as, as Graham said, maybe just not a suitable player for this particular setup. It's almost like they could use a play like I don't know Jesse Lingard. <laughs> I mean that 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 is the the counterpoint, right? Is like you do want somebody to come in, and if you're going to go with a four two three one, a number ten who's going to press and run and try to cause problems, that does feel like Jesse Lingard. I I, I think if you're not going to have him, if you're not going to keep him around, then you could try different things like Paul Pogba and Danny Van der Beek ahead of maybe a holding midfielder. Seems like it makes some sense, but maybe that then you don't want the mismatch that you're going to get, although I think that still gives you 3v3 in the middle, so who knows. But Pogba as the wide left center midfielder attacker sort of thing, I, I guess that's uh, Solskjaer trying to use him wherever he can, but there seems like there's better spots that he could be utilized that don't then mean you're playing a Matic-Fred double pivot. Indeed. Well, Manchester United don't have to concern themselves with this competition anymore. As I said, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer saying that trophies are for egotists, which feels like a shot across the bow (laughs) at uh, Jose Mourinho. But maybe someone should tell him that they do give a trophy out for the Premier League as well. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, that was was a strange one. That was a strange one. An interesting comment. Maybe there's something Mm -hmm. lost in translation. We'll have to find out perhaps what he meant there. Um, We're going to be right back after these messages. We're going to go continental and Scottish also. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hey folks, this is Taylor from the Total Soccer Show reminding you that we are inching ever closer to the start of the summer transfer window, which means there are teams that will buy and sell their players early, there are teams that will leave that business very late, and there are teams that will operate in between. But no matter what, it's going to be a chaotic situation, there's going to be offers coming through willy-nilly, there's going to be transactions to be tracked and processed and make sure that enough money is there, there's going to be probably angry clubs calling to complain, there are many things to deal with, and unfortunately for those clubs, there is no sort of business tool that makes things easier, makes transactions simpler, gets the business done efficiently and effectively, but for the small businesses around the globe, there is such a service, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're auctioning autographed apparel or selling sleek kits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And I really appreciate that about Shopify. No matter how big you are, no matter how fast you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the United States, and Shopify's the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklyn, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 100 
and 75 countries. That's as many countries as will be selling players in the transfer window this summer. Plus, Shopify's extensive help resources are there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash TSS, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash TSS now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash TSS. We are back. We're going to go continental for a moment. Barcelona got a 6-1 win over Real Sociedad this weekend. Two goals from a young lad called Serginho Dest. We should keep an eye on him for sure. Uh, Sociedad, by the way, losing their reserve coach, uh, Xavi Alonso, to Borussia Mönchengladbach. The news breaking today. That should be interesting how that one shakes out. Uh, In Italy, we had Juventus losing to Benevento to further help Inter Milan's Scudetto claim, which seems pretty inevitable by this point. But we, gentlemen, are going to go to France where we had Lyon taking on Paris Saint-Germain this one finishing 4-2 to the visitors from Paris this game was a battle uh, for the winners to go top of the league Kylian Mbappe in this game becoming the youngest player to score 100 goals in Ligue 1 with his brace in this game before we get to the soccer we have to talk about Paris Saint-Germain's kits because (laughs) they were quite something um Graham, maybe this is a reference you'll get, Taylor, but Graham, did you ever have global hypercolor shirts when you were younger? Uh, no, explain. Okay, I'm a bit older than you. They were sort of these tie-dye-looking shirts that if you breathed on them, they changed color. Taylor, was that a thing <laughs> we had in the States? It wasn't. It sounds like magic, and now I'm jealous. It's a very 90s thing, like pogs and trolls and global hypercolor shirts. Um, <laughs> but it was that, that was quite something. I got pa- one of those references. <laughs> <laughs> I'm older than I think, I guess, I suppose, is, the, is what we're getting from this conversation. But um, yeah, Paris Saint-Germain's kits, I thought, were interesting. And also, Kayla Navas, uh, in the all-green goalkeeper sh- uh, suit, he had um, green leggings on, so he just looked like the green man from Always Sunny in Philadelphia. <laughs> and it looked like he was about to go and do a green screen with his head floating around. <laughs> Uh, I love the Philadelphia <laughs> reference there. Yeah, um, at what point do I admit that I own this PSG shirt? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's brilliant. I mean, it, it definitely has an air of sort of um, college freshman hasn't quite figured out how to work the washing machine yet and has put in <laughs> a wrong color sock. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I, I, like- I understand it's it's weird, but that's what I love about it. I, I like it because it's different. I'm not going to disparage it too much. But if I was a sponsor, like you can't see any of the names on it or anything. You can't see any of the logos or the crests or even the name on the back. So that would be my criticism as a functional piece of equipment. Always thinking like a capitalist. <laughs> <laughs> see, I, I just appreciate that uh, my, my young niece uh, is starting to play soccer and she got uh, her, her first boots this weekend, which were black and pink. And it prompted the question of like, are... Like what? Why? Why do like girls' boots have to be pink? And my response to that was just like, no, it's not just girls' boots. It's a lot of stuff that are that are pink uh, in global soccer. PSG's jersey front and center amongst them. Indeed. Well, uh, that's enough jersey talk for once. Uh, I'm actually starting to think maybe I should buy that shirt. Do you, are you kind of guy Graham who buys like? Do you buy a lot Sorry. of jersey a lot of jerseys from different clubs like just because you like them, yeah. or do you? Is that how you roll? Yeah, I kind of, I kind of collect shirts and then, then like never wear them ever. So <laughs> I don't, I mean, I don't know. Yep. Like on holiday, I guess I would wear a shirt, maybe not even mm. that often. And I would wear wear it to uh, a shirt to to play like five aside, yeah, like pickup soccer. But um, yeah, other than that, they just clutter up my uh, wardrobe. But I, I am particularly fond of this PSG shirt. Fair enough. It, it, it's very Ford Madison, which I think is why I like it oh, so much. I yeah. think Graham yeah, just is, answered yeah. the question I was going to ask. I always struggle with this because I know jerseys is an American thing, right? Yes. You wouldn't but, normally say jerseys, yeah. But then is, does kit imply the entire thing and thus, Graham, is it a shirt? Is that what you would say? Yeah. So for okay. me, anyway, kit would be your your shorts and your socks as well. Mm-hmm. And then a shirt would just be the top bit. So I think the that I've been using shirt here because I think the so- the the socks and the shorts are just black, so it's the shirt that's the the eye catching okay. bit. I like it. I like it. I want to see you, uh, and now. I understand. Graham, I need to see full kit in that PSG uh, outfit with the socks <laughs> and the shorts as well, and it, on walking the mean streets of Glasgow and seeing uh, the kind of a uh, <laughs> the kind of reception you get. I want to see that and place. doing the Kylian Mbappe celebration. We need that in there too. <laughs> okay. That can be well, done. Uh, <laughs> Kylian Mbappe had several reasons to celebrate uh, on this game, getting the opening goal and the fourth goal as well. Um, Taylor, 
it seems like to me at least that Mauricio Pochettino is week by week making more of a mark on this team. This is one of the better performances of PSG's season. Yeah. Um, you know, scoring four goals and then sending Neymar on is quite a flex, I would suggest. Uh, and, you know, <laughs> him returning to the lineup for the first time um, yeah. in six weeks as well. A lot of sisters' birthdays uh, in those last six weeks, I presume. Um, but this 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 formation that Poch had, the, the, the four-two-three-one with Moise Keane on top, it seems like they're you know they're doing his his formation. They're doing the building from the back. They you know they're unsettling with the quick press, and they're they're becoming less Tuchel and more Poch each week. Is that fair? It is. I mean, they're still keeping the fundamental PSG DNA of maybe letting the opponent back in in the final twenty minutes because <laughs> that's kind of Poch as well, right? I guess it is. There, there's, there is a world in which this finished like four to four because yeah. Leon had a couple more very good chances that if they finished, this is a very different story. But, and I think that stands out to me because when that fourth goal went in, I basically was like, all right, I can kind of stop paying attention to this game because this is just PSG up for it. They've completely overwhelmed Leon. I don't see how Leon kind of find any way to get back into this one. Not that they necessarily did, but that I think they end up getting a couple goals, changes the narrative a little bit. But generally speaking, I think putting Marco Verratti in a position to run the offense, be the, the facilitator, and then letting Kylian Mbappe do what he wants to do, somehow yeah. getting Angel Di Maria to play aggressive defense at times in tracking back, it seems like he's gotten a lot of people to buy in. Some of that based on putting people in their natural positions to naturally shine. Some of that getting people to buy into what he is preaching, what he's bringing to the uh, the equation, and then making the team look that much better as a result. Graham, a very strong team this Paris Saint-Germain team is, and indeed uh, many tipping them to go all the way in the Champions League that step further this season. Um, perhaps you can comment on that, but also I wanted to know if you think they've got any specific weaknesses at the moment, because they do look very strong all around. I would suggest, I mean, one of their lone players, Florenzi, in fullback yeah. position, maybe not covering himself, certainly in glory in this game. And I think it was for the second Leon goal where he tried, to, he completely messed up trying to get the ball off Cornet and went in front of him and did some things defenders aren't supposed to do. Is there any? Is there anything you see as a as an Achilles heel in this team apart, apart from the fact they let teams like Leon <laughs> right back in at the end of games? Yeah, positionally and, and and just in terms of the personnel, you're absolutely spot on. I think Florenzi at right back is is the weak link of this team. I, when Poch took over, I, I said one of the things he would need to address and maybe go into the transfer market for were, were two new fullbacks. Mm. Um, Abdou Diallo has has come in at, at, at left back, and while he's not a a flying uh, sort of wing back uh, fullback in in the way that Poch would would normally like in that position he has done a good job in in well generally shoring up the defense as you say they allowed Leon back into this game in, in, in this particular match but he's he's done pretty well at left back Florenzi who is only on loan feels like a short term solution they obviously yeah. let Thomas Munier leave at the end of last season which looks a questionable decision for me, I don't think Munier, it wasn't that they couldn't improve on on Munier, but he he is better than what they have just now, and and so they probably should have, have kept him around. But I think um, yeah, that's the one weakness. I, I look through that that team now. Keylor Navas is in excellent form. Um, I think yeah. Marquinhos has been he's always been a, a good player for PSG, but he was playing a lot in midfield for Tuchel, and he's been moved back into his more preferred central defensive position. He's been excellent. I think he's having a good influence on uh, Pascal Kambembe alongside him. You know, that midfield uh, platform of uh, Gay and, and Danilo Pereira and then Verratti as well in there. And even Di Maria, as, as Taylor mentioned, helping out defensively. But I, I, Di Maria's going for his 100th assist for this PSG team. And I know this team is all about Mbappe and uh, Neymar, obviously. But I do think Di Maria sometimes flies under the radar as a bit of a giant for this team and his, yeah. his creative and attacking output is, is quite incredible. Obviously he scored in this game, but his next assist will be his 100th assist for PSG, which so is hang on. incredible. Do you think he was gutted that that free kick went in the goal then? He wanted his 100th <laughs> assist instead of the goal. Yeah, well, I think he'd probably take take the goal for the goal bonus. I imagine the, the PSG goal bonus is quite a pretty penny. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think he'll take that bonus. But yeah, 100 assists next time he uh, sets someone up, which is, is quite incredible. That is pretty impressive, isn't it? And Taylor, it does seem like this is, a, as I say, a very strong PSG team. What do you think about having Moise Kinn up top? It seems to be working 
Ken, Keen, not sure. Uh, but he, he was very good in this game all the same. Um, and having sort of Mbappe sit off behind him, it, it works really well, doesn't it? It, it definitely seems to. And that's a player who started off very strong at a Pochettino, then doesn't get as many minutes, and there's questions about how he's going to fit in long-term, and it seems like now how he's fitting in is playing regularly. Uh, being Italian conversant with Marco Verratti, I appreciated that they seemed to be going back and forth when Verratti got his foot stomped on. Uh, it was Ken who came over and had a chat with him, uh, and then picked him back up, and off they went. So I think the, the relationship with those two seems to be pretty good as well. But yeah, I think this is kind of what you get when you bring in Pochettino, at least early on, is intensity, everybody's kind of brought back in, let's see what happens, let's figure it out together, and then let's see if we can keep that intensity for a few more years. So, nice reminder this game for me at least that Ander Herrera is still a thing as well. Right, he came on still late. there. That was nice to know. Still yeah. part of the furniture. And Julian Draxler, Julian Draxler as well. As well. Yep. Yeah, exactly <laughs> that. Exactly that. Two players who you, you forget are kind of part of the furniture in Paris at the moment. Is there any more on this game, gents, before we, before we head on to our final one? Rafinha is there as well. Remember him? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> These are all players that two years yep. into my football manager save that I sign on a free and then never use and only use them in the cup competitions. Yeah. <laughs> so you and Potcher like, it sounds like, uh, for yeah. that one. Um, all right, then. Uh, that was our league uh, coverage for this weekend. One final game we're going to talk about, one close to Graham's heart and close to Graham's home in uh, Glasgow. Um, Celtic, I don't know how close it is to your heart. I won't speak for you on that, actually, Graham. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> all the same, the old from Derby Celtic against Rangers a 1-1 draw in this one uh, the key headline here is that Steven Gerrard's team have maintained their unbeaten record in the Scottish Premiership 28 wins and 5 draws zero losses in this one uh, impressions of the, uh, why don't we talk, talk about before the game as well uh, before we get into the actual um, game here we had some an incident perhaps you can uh, describe it in a bit more detail Graham, but we had an incident in Rangers game against Slavia Prague uh, with Glenn Kamara in the Europa League this week and some subsequent um, uh, incidents here. If you, if, I'll, I'll leave the floor to you, Graham. Yeah, and th- this is, this is uh, understandably dominated uh, the Scottish football agenda over the past week. There was uh, a lot of chat. I think we all expected that a lot of the, the chat to be a, about a, a potential guard of honour for Celtic, mm. for Ranger, for, from Celtic to, to Rangers after they won the title. But to be honest, that... That kind of faded into the background after um, alleged um, racial abuse of, of Glenn, Glenn Kamara during the Europa League defeat to Slavia Prague during the week. And, and, and really, the, one of the most notable things of, of this game, we kind of joked about it at the start, but it genuinely was quite heartwarming. Uh, Scott Brown walking over to, to Glenn Kamara before kickoff to to just give him a, a, a kind of, a, a, I don't know if you'd call it a hug, but certainly a pat on the back, a show, some show of support. And then uh, Celtic players kind of joining Rangers in this sort of uh, this um, symbolic stand against uh, racism before for kickoff, which also included the the players on the sideline as well. And it was it's quite a, a as I say a, a symbolic image, a, a strong image of these two historic and certainly fierce rivals um, coming together as a, as a united front against uh, against racism. So yeah, it was it was that was probably the most notable thing that that happened in the in the whole afternoon, to be honest. Yeah, you're probably quite right there. And uh, Scott Brown, did, he did walk over like he was going to punch someone, but it, it was nice <laughs> to see him go for the, the kind of hug as well. So that was a, a very endearing he, thing he to see. He genuinely looked like he'd been programmed. Like he had been reprogrammed <laughs> to walk over and hug. And he had like new software that had been added. He was still kind of figuring it out. It was a little bit buggy, but it did what it needed to. And away we went. <laughs> Indeed it did. And that, that whole talk about the Guard of Honour, Graham, was it a big shock? And how was that received in Scotland? Uh, um, you know, Celtic not, giving Rangers a guard of honour here as one might expect traditionally. It's not something you have to do, but it's something that's you know done traditionally. But they uh, it didn't happen the other way around last season, right? Yeah, or two, two seasons ago, because last so, yeah. season the, the season was ended prematurely. But yeah, two right, seasons right. ago, um, Rangers didn't give one to, to Celtic. So um, I guess no one was really surprised that, that Celtic didn't, didn't give one to Rangers. I think they're are they not kind of pointless anyway. I, I, the one that the only one that sticks in my mind as being memorable is the one that Arsenal gave Rob Van Persie when he went back to the the Emirates because that was quite funny. But everything else is. I mean, I feel like the handshake at the start of the game is enough of a. You know, you're kind of wishing mm-hmm. people good luck for the game and kind of show respect there. I, I don't know. Yeah. I'm I'm not a massive fan of the Guard of well, Honor. Didn't uh, John Terry get one of his own when he retired? And he oh, yeah, or by himself, yeah. His 26-minute substitution as well. <laughs> yeah, you're right. That, I remember that one as well. 
John that, Terry just has cutouts of all of his Chelsea teammates so that every morning when he wakes up, he gets a guard of honor. That's, it's on the way to the shower. It's a, it's a weird feature in his house. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, so um, this one, Graham, it did seem like uh, a slightly flat game, which is understandable because, uh, as I say, the Rangers have won the title already. But this, I think we said this last time we covered the old firm derby, but it feels like this is exactly the kind of game that needs a full stadium. Yeah, right. definitely. And 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 to be honest, the, the weird thing about this game was I totally agree it was it was quite flat, particularly the first um, twenty minutes and and a lot of the second half. It kind of livened up towards the end of the the first half when the two goals happened. But the weird thing about the old firm derby is there's not a lot of uh, football gets played in this game. And actually, <laughs> I felt like this game there was more football. It just wasn't particularly uh, high tempo or high intensity fo- football. So there was a much much more of the two teams keeping possession, particularly Celtic. And, and that yeah. is a bit of an unusual um, feature of, of an old firm game. It's normally just uh, tackles and headers. I feel shortchanged with only four yellow cards in the whole game and no reds. Can I get my money back on this one, please, Graham? <laughs> yeah, I think Sky Sports negotiate the contract on the basis of the number of red cards in old firm games. So yeah, they're probably due a rebate. Graham, Graham, I actually I did want to ask you about that. Like not so much the, the cards, but the intensity of the game because I feel like there there are derbies where you can tell that it's players who are steeped in it, have come through the academy or what have you. They do not like that rival, and you can tell. The Old Firm Derby feels like one of those, still to me, where the players, even if they are new to Celtic or Rangers, they, they, they do pick up that vibe a little bit. I think Ryan is right that a full stadium definitely intensifies it. But if you were spotlighting a couple players who you think most like don't sleep the night before or like if they do wake up ready to go because it's an old firm day like i'm assuming scott brown is on there weirdly alfredo morelos seems like maybe the player for rangers that is most up for it yeah morelos definitely one i don't know if you you know about morelos but there was he's he's obviously been a goal machine for rangers but until sunday he'd never scored in an old firm derby and um that was that was his 15th old firm derby so it was quite a big deal that that he scored in that game and also he scored the, his goal against Celtic was his fifty fifth league goal for Rangers, yep. and Rangers have made a big thing of this being their fifty fifth league title. So I like to think it was deliberate that actually yeah. he was waiting to score his fifty fifth goal to score against Celtic, and his celebration at the moment is to hold up five fingers on each hand to make ten. Obviously, referencing thank you. The ten. I was wondering the tenth successive league title that Celtic didn't win. So. Yes, that, oh, I, I thought I'm, that was five five. I got you now. All right, no, it, okay. It's, it's well, it's it's definitely uh, yeah. It can it can go both ways, but it originally <laughs> started as ten. I see. Yeah. <laughs> How many more? Red, he, I'm assuming he's got significantly more reds in old firm games then, because I feel like I've seen him get two myself. Yep, he's definitely got two. He might even have a third one because I think he got sent <laughs> off last season. Even when everyone oh. was telling him to calm, to calm down, he still managed to get sent off at the end of the match. But he's he's sort of cut that out of his of his game. I think he has six goals in his last five games, and he was struggling for the first half of the season. That he came back from the from lockdown, um, carrying a little bit more timber than than he should have, which I think we can all probably relate to in uh, in lockdown. But yes, for yeah. a professional yeah. soccer player, maybe not what you want to aim for. But it, it, he's definitely up to speed now, and and I think um, he'll probably get a, a relatively big money move in the summer, along with Edward, the two best strikers in, in Scottish football, will probably be leaving at the end of the season. I'd imagine. Yeah, I was going to pick up on Edward. He did seem to have a very impressive game, Graham. Is, is he has he been linked to some clubs elsewhere? Oh, is there a club that hasn't been linked with Odds and Edward? <laughs> to be honest, Arsenal um, consistently get linked with with him. Uh, Roma recently, um, genuinely. I, I mean, I've even seen. I mean, this is obviously a little bit far fetched, but I even saw a story about Real Madrid tracking him, sending him a scout. I'm always, I always laugh at these stories of of of. A team team X scouting player Y, and then a, a newspaper basically suggesting that they're gonna they're gonna buy that player. I mean, the biggest clubs scout players everywhere, so I'd, I'd probably imagine that a Real Madrid scout has had a look at, at Odds and Edward. It doesn't mean they're gonna pay thirty million for him, but yes, I, I think he probably. I, I feel like uh, Aston Villa looked like a good fit from last season, but obviously mm. they went and got Ollie Watkins. Leicester with the Brendan Rodgers link, you would imagine. 
obviously they've got Vardy and Iheanacho's now coming good, but he, that might be a good fit for him. But he he's been one of the few players that for for Celtic this season who is who has uh, lived up to his his reputation. Probably him and and uh, well, I guess Ellen Yusey and David yeah. Turnbull, the only two other uh, star performers for Celtic this season. Probably not John Joe Kenny uh, as a star performer here. Wasn't too wonderful in this one, showing a bit of his. Schalke roots, I would suggest, in this game. Uh, I think he conceded the corner and uh, lost Morelos for the goal as well in this one. Uh, but yeah, on, on Celtic, John Kennedy being the part-time, uh, sorry, caretaker coach, Graham, uh, are they have they got got someone a big name lined up? Is it going to be Neil Lennon again? What's what's going on with that? <laughs> yeah, they'll just they'll 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 search for a couple months and then uh, just give Neil Lennon a call. Yeah. That's pretty much how he got the job in the first place. <laughs> um, it will. It won't be John Kennedy. I'm pretty confident in saying that Celtic needs a a name, someone to excite the fans a little bit. That one of the biggest accusations of this board is that they they lack ambition, and so if they give it to John Kennedy, who I'm sure is a you know a decent guy and a decent coach, he's been there for a long time, but he's he's not going to he's not going to sell season tickets, put it that way. So mm. I think it's it's going to have to be someone for me. The the one that's most consistently linked to the job and. It, there seems to be something in it would be Eddie Howe, who's who's obviously been been out of work for a while. Yeah. Um, some Celtic fans are living in a slightly different world over who they might attract to the club. Rafa Benitez gets mentioned a lot, and I just don't think they realise how much Rafa Benitez gets paid. <laughs> um, <laughs> or the fact that he probably doesn't want to work in Scottish football. I saw Jesse Marsh made comments last week about potentially taking the Celtic job, but I think he was just being polite. And then I saw Celtic fans kind of rubbishing his credentials and saying Celtic should be aiming higher than an American coach coaching in Austria and just thinking to myself, I eh, don't think you really know who Jesse Marsh is or what he's done or how highly he's he's rated in European football. So I, it's not going to be Benitez, it's not going to be Jesse Marsh, it's not going to be Mourinho is another one that's mentioned by Celtic fans. It could be someone like Eddie Howe though. Hmm. Probably Pep then is what we're hearing. Pep, yeah, sounds like it. Uh, well, it's not going to be Xavi Alonso because he's gone to Gladbach, of course. So uh, the hunt there continues. Graham, thank you very much for, uh, for for that little roundup of the old firm. And thank you, Taylor, as well, for your contributions on this weekend review. Anything else from either of you two gents before we uh, let the nice people uh, carry on with the rest of their lives? You don't want to hear anything about Sterling Albion's win over Brecon at the weekend? Go on, first quick, in, quick 10 minutes in. then, quick 10 minutes. Go on. Uh, I'll give you 10 seconds. We won one nil and we're now up to second place in the table and we've got to fit in 22 fixtures over the next two and a half months. So that's going to be fun. Okay, makes notes to edit out Graham's comment about that. Okay, good. <laughs> that's good. I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you're writing these things down. Right? <laughs> uh, and for me, I just keep going to, I appreciate that in Gladbach's hiring process, I think the final interview question is like, but uh, do you grow a beard? And if so, do you look handsome with the beard? And if the answer is yes, <laughs> then they will hire you. But only if the answer is yes. Oh, that man. seems to be the, the clear point for them. Do you think yeah. Jason Bateman got really close but just didn't have the Alonso beard? Otherwise, you that know, was the problem. he had to look. That's what held him back. Yeah, <laughs> They do hire handsome managers, glad back. <laughs> a thirst trap of a club. <laughs> <laughs> That is how they are known indeed. And on that wonderful note, thank you very much, listener, for giving us the time on this Week in Review. Taylor, thank you very much, sir. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Graham, for that closing line. <laughs> thank you, Graham, you little thirst trap. <laughs> Goodbye, Ryan. Bye! As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel.
Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. 